Well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians? Now, if you're new with us, welcome. Let me just uh, tell you what we're doing. Last week, we began a new study here at Calvary, uh, a study uh, in the epistle to the Philippians. You probably figured that out. Um, but instead of going verse by verse through Philippians, which is the standard way we teach here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to do a topical study through the book instead. As I said last time, every book in the New Testament has a theme. And so I thought it might be beneficial to build a series of messages around the main theme of the book of Philippians, which is joy. Now, what makes that theme so powerful is that Paul wrote this letter while he was a prisoner in Rome. It's easy to be joyful, you know, when you're in the midst of blessings. But when you find yourself joyful in the midst of adversity and suffering, that's really special. That says something about your walk and where you are with the Lord. Now, as we said last week, the letter to the Philippians was one of four epistles. They were called the prison epistles, are called, I should say. But uh, Philippians was one of four epistles that Paul wrote while under house arrest in Rome. The others were Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. What was he doing there? Well, he was waiting to stand trial before Caesar to defend himself against the uh, false accusations that were leveled against him by the Jewish leadership in Israel. The accu these accusations were extremely serious, that Paul uh, was an insurrectionist and an inciter of riots around the empire. You see, the um, Jewish leadership knew what Rome took most seriously, and they knew that they would really perk up and take notice of this guy if the charges leveled against him was he was an insurrectionist. Romans were very uh, protective of their precious Pax Romana. And anything that sought to steal the peace uh, was looked upon and dealt with in a very severe way. In fact, in Roman law, these crimes were capital offenses. And if found guilty, would have resulted in Paul's execution. And yet the theme of this epistle is joy in the Lord. How was it that Paul could have so much joy while in such a terrible place with his very life on the line? Well, before we answer that, we need to define what joy is. What joy is. Guys, joy is an inward reality which only comes into a person's life when they accept Jesus Christ into their heart as their Savior and are born again of the Spirit. Don't confuse happiness with joy. People use them uh, interchangeably like synonyms. They are absolutely not, especially from the Bible's point of view. Joy is an inner, unchanging quality of the heart based on absolute truth. Whereas, in other words, the truth that your relationship with Jesus is never going to change. Since he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, our relationship with him is the same, always. And that's where joy comes in, because Jesus is in our hearts. Joy is based on the unchanging quality of the heart, based on absolute truth, whereas happiness is a frame of mind based on outward circumstances. 
which means it comes and goes. It's here one minute, gone the next, that kind of thing. Now, the Christian life doesn't promise constant happiness, but it does promise perpetual joy. As we pointed out many times in the past, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, one of them. There are several. You can get a list of nine from Galatians 5, 22 and 3. But joy is a fruit of the Spirit, which means it's an attribute of God. The joy of the Lord is a divine attribute only found in the nature of God, which means we can't manufacture it no matter how much pleasure and material things we try to stuff into the void in our hearts. And I'm telling you, people have done this since the beginning of time. The Bible says God has created each of us with a God-shaped void. And nothing in this world can fill it. Nothing in this world can fill it except Jesus Christ. But the world still tries to stuff in that void all kinds of material pleasures and material things. But the closest we can come to reproducing joy from a human nature standpoint is the fragile, fleeting, <laughs> and easily lost feeling of happiness. Now look, I'm not putting happiness down. I like being happy. But when compared to joy, which comes from God, well, it's a cheap substitute to be sure. You see, our English word happy is based on an old Anglo-Saxon word, hap, which means chance, as in happenstance, or whatever happens. You get the idea. Happiness is circumstantial, and therefore it is uncertain, temporary, and insecure. But unfortunately, that's as close as we can come to the attribute of joy as human beings trying to replicate joy from, a, from our human nature. You see, because joy is a part of God's nature, the only way for joy to fill our hearts is if God fills our hearts. And the only way for God to fill our hearts is when the Holy Spirit moves in. And the only way that happens is when a person gives their heart to Jesus Christ by faith, inviting him to come in. And when you do that, you are instantly born again. The Holy Spirit moves in, and as Peter said in the second epistle, chapter 1, verse 4, at that moment you become partakers of God's divine nature. God moves in. And now that you have the nature of God within you, you now have access to all the attributes of God. But I say that I mean the fruits of the Spirit. I mean, they're there. We don't have to access them, but they're there. Unbelievers don't have them in their hearts, so they can't, you know, they can't have agape love. I mean, in fact, Romans 5, 5, when you get saved, the Spirit of God moves in, and the first thing it does is pour God's agape love into your heart. We, we, you know, we have human love, but agape is God's love. Just like joy is from God and peace and long-suffering and all these attributes, they are really simply the nature of God being manifested in our lives because we have received Jesus into our hearts at the moment of salvation. Now, there is no true joy apart from God and His Son, Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that once God's, God's joy fills our hearts as Christians, 
it can never be taken away. I want to talk about that. But there are certain conditions. You're saved. The Spirit of God has moved in. He's poured God's attributes into your heart. Why don't we experience them more? Why don't we experience more joy, more peace, and so on? Well, there are conditions that we have to meet if these things are going to become an ongoing thing in our lives where we have access to them on a regular basis, right? Where we start seeing them growing uh, in our lives uh, on a regular basis. There are conditions that we must fulfill. You say, well, what are they? Well, turn to John 15. And you might want to leave your finger here because I'm just going to touch on something and then we'll come back and read the whole passage. But I want to make a point. So turn to John 15. I just want to read the beginning part of verse 7 and then verse 11. So John 15, 7. Now this is the night before the cross. They At this point they're working their way towards the, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to spend the remaining uh, time it's early in the morning by this time, in prayer before he's arrested and then uh, taken to Caiaphas' house for the first of two kangaroo trials uh, that's going to lead up to his ultimate crucifixion. But he's, he's giving his men one last discourse, a farewell address as we have called it, right? He wants, he's pointing out some of the most important things he has taught them over the course of his ministry for three and a half years. And so he's touching on the most important lessons he wants them to learn. And he says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now skip over to verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is saying that if we abide in him and his words abide in us, that we will bear much fruit. Or in other words, we will have much joy. Now you say, well, yes, but how exactly do I abide in Jesus? By continuing in his word. I mean, Jesus, John opened his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Uh, all things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You have essentially in your laps this morning jesus christ in print the word of god is jesus uh, psalm 40 verse 7 the volume of the book he said speaking through david but jesus christ the volume of the book your bibles has been written about me you search the scriptures daily he told the pharisees for in them you think you have eternal life but it's they that testify of me so how do you abide in Jesus? Very simply, by continuing in his word. And if you do, Jesus promised, his joy will remain, key word, will remain in you and be full. I want you to notice what Jesus is saying here. He is saying that his joy, once placed in the heart of a believer, won't automatically remain there. The Lord Jesus is telling us that joy can be stolen from us. How? Well, Paul is going to tell us in Philippians the things that will rob us of our joy. He talks about four things throughout the book. We'll point them out as we go, but I'll give them to you up front. That would be terrible, right? Leave you hanging. 
I'm not going to do that, okay? Because you'll be thinking the rest of this message this morning, what is it? What are they? Why did he tell me? I'm going to tell you right now, right? There's four, Paul talks about four things throughout the book of Philippians that will uh, rob us of our joy. And those things, uh, and if we let them, by the way, the whole point is that we want to give you a heads up so that you don't let these things rob you of your joy. Here they are, circumstances, people, selfishness, and worry. Again, circumstances, people, self, selfishness, and worry. And so, guys, our study in Philippians will not only teach us how we can have joy, but also how we can keep that joy once we have it. Now, let me say by way of review from last week's introduction into our study in Philippians, which I've entitled, It's All in Your Head. And if you wonder, what in the world is he talking about? You can go online and listen to the message. But I'll just give you a little bit as a refresher, or if you're new, to give you a little bit of a heads up. <laughs> no pun intended. It's all in your head. All right? But as I, I said in that message, the secret of having joy in the Christian life along with all the other virtues, spiritual virtues God wants for us, starts in the mind with the way you think. Now, by saying that I'm not talking about any kind of weird metaphysical nonsense, I'm saying that joy can be accessed from your heart. Where is the joy? When you got saved, the Spirit of God moved in, you became a partaker of God's divine nature, it's in your heart. It's in your new nature, the fruits of the Spirit. Again, we don't always access them. Christians can have no joy. They can have no love. They can have no peace. It's something that we have to, to cultivate a mindset. It's there, these things, these attributes of God. They're in the heart. And they were put there the moment I received Christ and became a partaker of God's divine nature. But they are accessed from our hearts, through our minds, by faith. Please, I don't want to lose anybody, okay? The mind and the heart work together oftentimes. And the heart becomes the repository for many of the blessings God wants for us, but they have to be accessed, they have to be appropriated by faith. And that really is the way we think, okay? The way we think. But let me tell you this. The only way faith can be active and powerful is by what you feed it. He said, what do you mean? By what you focus on. In other words, are you going to let... What are you going to let dominate your thinking is the point I'm making. I mean, on a daily basis, the promises of God or the circumstances you find yourself in, in at any given moment. Guys, let me just tell you this. So much in the Christian life is there, but we have to cultivate it. What do I mean? The Bible says when each of us gave our heart to Christ, God gave to us a measure of faith, a little down payment of faith. Now, what we do with that faith is up to us. Faith, as some have said, is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the more it grows, the stronger it gets. Because a lot of Christians refuse to exercise any faith. They're scared of everything. 
Uh, they're like the children of Israel caught between Egypt and Canaan. Egypt being the world, Canaan being the life of the Spirit, the promised land, that place of blessing and virtue and victory, all that God wanted for his people to go right into. But they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And Paul the Apostle tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, I believe, that the wilderness was characterized by unbelief, murmuring, complaining, and so on. So a lot of those folks would not exercise faith. They, wouldn't, they would not believe in the promises of God. I got a land for you flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to lead you into it. There's giants there, but don't worry about it. I'm going to give you victory. Most of those, those people could not comprehend fighting giants. And so their unbelief drove them back out in the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years until that generation, 20 and above, died. So a lot of Christians are caught between Egypt and Canaan. They're in a spiritual wilderness where they're wandering around aimlessly, murmuring, complaining, never having peace, no, no very little victory, because they have not chosen to exercise the faith God has given them whereby it's going to grow larger and stronger. And how does that happen when God allows you to go through trials, adversities, and you seek, you choose to focus on the promises of God, the goodness of God, the power of God. You don't look at the size of the enemy. Like David did not look at the size of Goliath, right? This little shepherd guy. How old David was, I don't know, maybe 16 when he faced Goliath and all the armies of Israel were cowering because every day he'd walk out and challenge the strongest guy, soldier of Israel, to come, let's fight. We don't need the whole armies to get involved, right? And so he challenged them. And they were terrified. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, nobody would go out and meet him in battle. David was dropping supplies off to his brothers. He heard Goliath taunting the people of God and the God of Israel. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that, Philistine that would dare blaspheme the name of the living God? I'll fight him. I'll fight him. Oh, but David, he's a man of war from his youth. You're a youth. How are you going to fight this guy? Well, when I was watching my dad's sheep, a bear came out of the woods, and I grabbed the bear, and I killed it. Another time a lion came out of the woods looking to devour the sheep. I went and I grabbed it by the mane and I killed it. And the same God who delivered me from the lion and from the bear will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. And when David walked out, Goliath was incensed. I come to you looking for a warrior. You send me a shepherd boy? Come here, little boy. I'm going to cut your head off and feed you to the birds. And David didn't even hesitate. He started running towards the giant, put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, put it in a sling, began to swing it as he ran towards this giant and said, you come to me with sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the God of Israel, and it is he who will deliver you into my hand. The armies of Israel looked at the size of the enemy. David looked at the size of his God. And we have to do that, guys. Absolutely do we have to do that. And you know what? Before we faced Goliath, the gigantic challenge, 
There'll be little challenges along the way that God will use. I don't think a bear and a lion are little challenges, but, you know, you get my point, right? To prepare us for the... Faith is something God allows us to exercise until it's strong enough for God to lead us into some of the major battles he wants us to, to take on. But again, Paul wrote the Philippians while waiting to stand trial a trial that could very well have ended in his execution. And yet the theme of this epistle is joy in the Lord. And the reason Philippians is called the epistle of joy is because Paul uses the word joy and rejoice 16 times in these four chapters, which begs the question, how was it that Paul could have so much joy while in such a terrible place with his very life on the line? Well, as we said last time, Paul had a secret. A secret that he had honed and he had developed uh, over the course of his time as a Christian. Many years. A secret he had learned and honed. And uh, he shares it with the Philippians. And by extension, with all of us. And very simply, it was that Paul learned to fill his mind with Jesus. Now, fill your mind with Jesus, guys. All right, let's pray. Well, you're like, well, can I have a little more? I mean, what does that exactly mean, right? It's a little nebulous. Fill your mind with Jesus. What, what, what does that actually mean? Okay. I, I believe what Paul did when, when I say he filled his mind with Jesus, uh, by that I mean he filled his mind with the promises of God given to us through what Jesus did on the cross and then rising from the dead. Paul was one who kept his eyes on God and on the promises of God. Didn't he say that in 2 Corinthians 4? For these light afflictions which are but for a moment are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen, they are eternal. Paul cultivated a heavenly perspective. And we need to do that also. But what Paul's perspective was that Jesus Christ came down, died for his sins, rose from the dead, and has guaranteed him a place in heaven, like Peter said, where the joy unspeakable, full of glory, a place that will never fade away, will never be destroyed, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith. Heaven's waiting for us. And one thing that Paul managed to do, he unchained himself from the cares of this life. He said, you got to live in this world until Jesus comes for us or until you die, and then he'll take you. You're going to be in the world, but don't be like the world. You're going to have to come in contact with the world, but don't be entangled with the cares of this life. Very important point. So Paul focused on Jesus. We see this, guys, very clearly in the first chapter alone where Paul uses Christ and Jesus Christ 17 times which figures out to more than once every two verses. And even though Paul talks about joy quite a bit in this epistle, he talks about Jesus more. And in so doing, he reveals to us the secret of joy in the life of a child of God is to have our minds focused on Jesus. Now, let me say it again. The secret of having joy starts in the mind with the way you think. But then again, everything in the Christian life starts with the way we think. About what? About the Word of God. Do you have a high view of Scripture? 
or a low view. A high view is you believe every word in God's, in the, in the Bible, God's word, was put there by the Holy Spirit. Everything down to the smallest detail, as Jesus put it, every jot, every tittle. We would say every dot of the I, cross of the T, has been put there by the hand of God, the Holy Spirit. It all means something. There's nothing uh, that uh, is uh, throwaway information. It's all pertinent. It's all, it's all important. And I have a high view of Scripture. When you have a high view of Scripture, that this is, in fact, in your lap, the very Word of God, uh, that Word then becomes living and powerful. Again, it, it all comes down to the way you think. If you don't think the Word of God, the Bible is God's Word. If you have a low view of Scripture, if you're even saved, it means you don't trust God's Word, like the children of Israel in the wilderness. They didn't trust God's Word. They had it. They didn't believe it. We need to understand that. If you have a high view of Scripture, it means you love it. You want to feed on it every day. Not that we always do, but that's the goal. Everything in the Christian life starts with the way you think about God's Word and your willingness to feed on it every day, to hide it in your heart. Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11, and most importantly, believe all that it says. All the great and precious promises God has given to us in His Word mean nothing if you don't believe them. You don't think God's trustworthy? If you don't think when God makes you a promise, it's as good as done, you can take it to the bank, so to speak. You don't know when or how, but he's going to do it. And then and only then, guys, will the word of God, living and powerful, transform your life and in the process fill you with the joy of the Lord. But look, as long as we mentioned, because I can just hear somebody out there, good heavens, Mabel, when is he going to get into Philippians? hang in there George we're getting there buddy just give me a, indulge me a little while longer look as long as we mention those things that can rob us of our joy um, let me mention again what becomes our defense or safeguard against these joy stealers we don't have to guess what they are because Jesus told us Turn back to John 15. And I want to first look at verses 4 and 5. And again, I'm repeating a little bit what we just talked about, but I want to make a point here too. All right, so John 15, starting with verse 4. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit, that's the key word here, of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now, in reading this, again, we need to remind ourselves what Paul talked about when he talked about fruit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, and we, it seems that Jesus is, is keying on that one. There's others, and they're all tremendous. But it seems like in light of the events in just a few hours, when his closest men would see the Lord beaten and hung on a cross, their joy was going to be gone. And he wants to, re let's put it this way, their happiness was going to be taken from them. 
but he wants to tell them if they will be patient and have faith, their joy will be full. So Jesus, I believe, is making a reference right here in John 15 to one fruit of the Spirit in particular, joy. Verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, for so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. And again, did you notice that Jesus said, If you abide in me, and listen, my words abide in you. You'll bear much fruit, or in other words, you'll have much joy. Abiding in the Word, filling your mind with the Word of God, and allowing it to transform your thinking, listen, is your main protection against the joy stealers. Circumstances, people, self, and then worry. It's the key to Jesus' joy remaining in you and overflowing your life. And in a nutshell, that was the secret to Paul's ability to have joy while in prison. With his possible execution hanging over his head, he learned to fill his mind with Jesus. I, I, I really hit this hard last week, and we're hitting it hard again. The mind is so important, right? Look, for all the years, before we got saved, we didn't realize it, but the God of this world was indoctrinating us. He was programming us. He was brainwashing us by the things we watched on TV, by the things we listened to, by all kinds of ideologies that were preached to us in school by professors or wherever it was, right? We didn't realize before we got saved that the devil was had been programming us for years. Because as a man or woman thinks in their heart, what? So are they. If Satan can control you the way you think, he can control the way you live. And that's why the minute you get saved, you need to start unbrainwashing yourself. How do you do that? Romans 12, 2. Um, don't let any longer, don't let yourself any longer be conformed to this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? By filling your mind with God's word. When you fill your mind with God's word, you think God's thoughts. You are reprogramming yourself from the world's way of thinking to God's way of thinking. From the world's lies, the devil's lies, to God's truth. The mind is so important, and Paul knew that. And that's why here in, in Philippians, he uses the word mind ten times, thinking five times, and remember 16 times in this epistle of joy. It's because the secret to Christian joy is found in your mind. It's rooted in your heart, that's true. But it's accessed in, accessed in your mind by how you think about life and how you approach life. Is everything, you know, terrible and hopeless? You know, we got Christians walking around who are in themselves a walking contradiction. They claim that they've received Christ and have become a child of God, recipients of 
all the great and precious promises God has given them ultimately heaven forever. Yet they walk around depressed. Why? Because they're focusing on their circumstances or on our country or on the world. I know it looks pretty bad. And like Peter, we can choose to get our eyes off of the Lord and onto the circumstances and start to sink. Or we can look at this world and we can say, you know, Lord, praise you. Because you have told me what's going to happen and here it is. The world is being aligned for a one world government. You've told us that in your word. And after the Antichrist deceives millions and millions of people into thinking he is the savior of mankind. Jesus Christ is going to come and destroy him and his armies and establish a true kingdom of righteousness, which will never end. We need to keep focusing on that. But all, you know, let me tell you this. How you approach life is very important. How, what do you think about things going on today? Might I add that your outlook will be determined by your uplook. What do I mean? Colossians 3, 2. Paul said, set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. Guys, this isn't PMA, positive mental attitude. It's BMA, biblical mental attitude. <laughs> or what Paul calls having the mind of Christ. Now, let me just say again that this study in Philippians is going to be different from the normal way we study a book in the Bible, which is verse by verse. I will tell you this, I've already taught Philippians verse by verse. So you can go online if you, if you want to, because we're going to leave some stuff out. We're not going to take it verse by verse. We're going to take, take it, you know, topically. This is hard for me. <laughs> you have no idea. I mean, I'm, beads of sweat were building on my brow as I was, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. I'm a verse-by-verse guy. You, you made me that way, Lord. You'll be fine. Just, just trust me. So here, I, I want to study, um, again, this book using the main theme of joy to build this series around, Okay. So what I did was I, I used the concordance resource in my computer Bible program and searched Philippians to see all the places where the words joy and rejoice appear. Now, rejoice in its different forms, rejoicing, rejoiced, okay? Uh, but joy and rejoice. And it was 16 times. Then I went to each of those verses, and I made careful that I looked at all the surrounding verses around where these words appeared so that I didn't take anything out of context. And as you're going to see, sometimes a word may appear in one verse, but then has a whole bunch of context around it. So I harvested all of that and copied and pasted into a Word document, and then I studied it. I wanted to see every place Paul used the word joy and rejoice, rejoicing, re, you know, that kind of thing. I wanted to know what the context was. What was he talking about? Why did he use that word? Was he talking about something that he did or taught or something in his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that gave him joy or imparted joy? Then I placed each passage 
under a heading. Joy in unity. Joy in the Lord, etc. These headings will become the main points I want to build this series around. So let's start. Philippians 1, starting with verse 3. Where Paul said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, be, excuse me, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense of, excuse me, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Verse 8 For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So you notice the word joy appears in verse 4 and is connected with what comes after it in verse 5. He talks about joy for your fellowship and the gospel from the first day until now. Guys, this becomes the main thought of the passage. Like a river, like a, a river, a, a large river, which then flows into tributaries of connected thoughts. Thoughts that become the first main point of our outline on joy. I'm going to call this first main point joy in fellowship chapter 1 verses 3 through 11 now guys the concept of fellowship permeates the bible but is especially important and prominent in the new testament for various reasons and i'll point these out as we go but for right now we need to define what biblical fellowship really is we define joy now we need to define fellowship because that's our main point joy in fellowship right i will say this Fellowship among believers in Christ was one of the pillars the early church was built on. Turn to Acts 2.42 quickly. And I have you turn to this because it's an it's a essential uh, verse for the church. Fellowship among believers in Christ was one of the pillars of the early church it was built on. Acts 2.42 they, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, Christians, continued steadfastly, first of all, in the apostles' doctrine. So they stayed in the word. They were taught the word by the apostles. Steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, there's our word, but also in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The Greek word translated fellowship is koinonia. It's a word we really don't have an English equivalent for which means uh, we have to use several words in English to capture the meaning of this one Greek word. It basically means having things in common. Having things in common. The Latin form communio is where we get the word communion from. In fact, this word is translated communion in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. 
2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, and 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. It's translated distribution in the sense of sharing in 2 Corinthians 9, 13, and contribution in Romans 15, 26. But it's most frequently translated fellowship in the New Testament, a word that describes the interaction of believers with one another in the early church, but it should represent every church. That's why we're looking at it, okay? But of course, as we read the New Testament, we see fellowship being lived out in the lives of these early Christians, all right? Uh, what does that exactly mean? Uh, well, again, it it the word describes the interaction of believers with one another in the early church. It means the sharing of one's life and possessions with another. It speaks of their unity, their oneness, and primarily the intimacy, the intimacy they had and the love they shared with each other. It was a whole lot more than having coffee and cake after church, which I'm not putting that down. Again, I like to be happy. But it's more than that, obviously. Um, it describes lives that were interconnected with each other, lives that were dependent on one another. Koinonia has a variant that is closely related to it, koinonikos, which is a Greek word for generous. Those who are in Christ, saved, have God's nature within them. We just talked about that, which means that because God by nature is generous, God's people, filled with his spirit, are generous to others also. I have seen this testimony many times over the last 40 plus years of ministry where people have been very selfish and uh, stingy before they got saved. And once they got saved, they become the most sweet, generous, giving people you want to... Why? How? Because God's spirit was in them. God's nature was planted within them. Now, we see this exemplified, this generosity, this caring for others, working together, sharing what you have. First of all, in Acts 2, we want to turn there, and then we'll jump over to Acts 4. And I'll just look at this. We'll look at it quickly, uh, revisit it next time, but I want to just throw it out there. So, first of all, Acts 2 Verses 44 and 45. Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. That's a form of koinonia right there. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Verse 34, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now, I want to throw this out. i got to just mention this um, because... Um, you will hear people that espouse communism as the way to live. And you say, well, that, that, that's not biblical. And they'll tell you, oh, yes, it is. The early church practiced a form of communism right here. And they'll take you to these passages. 
And they believed because the early church practiced a form of communism that, and they lived a communal lifestyle, that all Christians today should live this way. But is that really what's going on here? No. Those early believers didn't practice communism. They practiced what we could call communism. Communism. And there's a big difference. Communism says what's yours is mine, I'll take it. Communism says what's mine is yours, I'll share it. How do we know that the early church didn't practice communism? Well, again, chapter 2, Acts 2, verses 44 and 5. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. The Greek is literally... They were continually selling their possessions and goods and were continually dividing them among all. In other words, guys, they never just sold everything. You know, at the beginning of the church, they just they didn't sell everything they had and put everything in one big kitty, and then the apostles doled it out. They didn't do that. They kept their properties. They still own their own homes, which they met in throughout the week, going from house to house and eating and breaking their bread. Acts 2.46 tells us. These possessions that they were selling as needs arose were, you know, land holdings. Some of these people were well-to-do. They had more than one house that they owned, uh, which they sold at various times as various needs arose. So this family was really down and out. Hey, I got a piece of land. I'm going to sell it. I'll give the money to them so that they have food. All right? Their sharing was completely voluntary, unlike communism. And their fellowship was motivated by love, not by commandment or constraint from the apostles. Now, we know this clearly because, you know, everyone started selling property and to help people. Well, you don't want to look like a stingy person. So a couple named Ananias and Sapphira had some property. And they sold it and brought the money, half of it or some of it, to the apostles and gave it to the church. But claimed they had given all the money to the church. And Peter confronted Ananias in Acts 5 verse 4. He said, while your land remained, was it not your own? And after you sold it, was that money not in your control? Peter saying, guys, we never asked you to sell your property. We, we never told you you had to sell that piece of property and give us the money. You did that voluntarily. And the issue here is not that you didn't give the money to the church or to God. It's that you lied about it. You know, God doesn't need our money. He can do whatever he wants all on his own. Where he guides, he provides. He, he doesn't have... Phil Ballmeyer's and Cindy Ballmeyer's little pittance of an offering is not going to you know build the entire kingdom of God. So why do you give? Because I need to. I'm selfish. And this forces me to be a little less selfish by taking note of the needs of others and selling what I have so that I can help them who are in need. 
But guys, this confirms that the selling of personal property was no command from God that those early Christians had to follow. Look, communism produces no joy. It's forced. It's mandatory. Communism, or Christian fellowship, brings great joy. And we want to build on that idea next time as we continue this first point of our outline through the book of Philippians that there is joy in Christian fellowship. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love for us, how kind and good and generous you have been with us, Lord. Give us grace to be like you. As your representatives in this world, give us grace that we not hoard the blessings, that we not act selfishly, that we not put ourselves above others, but that we esteem others better than ourselves and use whatever resources you've given to us to help others in need. But we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for uh, this incredible book. And we ask you to give us grace as we go through it that we might glean, mine, these truths, these nuggets of truth that will help us to grow in our joy and in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.